<clears throat> so welcome to JLI uh, Journey of the Soul Lesson 2. It's great to see you all. And uh, we are ready to move on. And this class is going to be action-packed. We have a lot, a lot of details to cover. Um, so let me set the stage. So last time we discussed about the soul and um, we discussed that who is the real you is the soul. And as we discussed, we are not physical people that have spiritual experiences. We are actual spiritual beings that have a physical experience for a short while while on this earth. So our soul is the real us and we have a short journey upon this earth until we continue on. And uh, with that, the main point of the class was therefore to take from that, that to try and do things that identify more with our soul than with our body. Because um, when we do bodily things, the bodily things, they die away when we pass away and the soul is what continues. And right on that track, we're gonna continue with today's class, which is what actually happens when we pass away. And we're gonna deal with that on many different levels. We're gonna deal with it, um, how, uh, how the soul feels about departing from this earth, how we feel about the soul departing from this earth, we're not gonna deal with so much. We dealt with that a little bit more last time. We will deal with it this week too, but obviously we know it's painful and it's difficult. We're also gonna discuss um, many of the customs that are associated with the passing and the burial um, and, and their meaning and how it relates to how our understanding of the soul. Um, so before we start, I would like to make mention that um, tonight's class is sponsored by Anonymous. So we have, thank God so far, four of the six classes are sponsored. Um, and tonight's class was sponsored by Anonymous. And may Hashem bless you and your family with a wonderful blessing in the merit of tonight's Torah study. I also want to mention, so like I said, there's two more classes that are available for, for uh, sponsorship. I also want to mention that um, uh, in addition to that, I think we can also dedicate it to Rabbi Dr. Abraham J. Tversky. Rabbi Dr. Abraham J. Tversky just passed away. A very, very sad, uh, an amazing person. Uh, you know, undeniable mark that he's left in this world. Um, so many things that he's done. If you have never read any of his books, I'm, I would be surprised. But if you haven't, uh, definitely go look up and you will find one of his 60 books. Um, he is really the one that brought recovery into the Jewish arena. Uh, also teaching us that people who may be addicts or people who suffer from different uh, ills of, of, that, of those sort are not the lowest of society. And uh, he really integrated, 12, you know, looked into the 12 steps and see how it really can integrate with Judaism and, and allowed the Jews, even those who are more traditional, to feel safe to go there and it would not contradict their religion, uh, amongst many of his other accomplishments. Um, so really, really a special person. And um, so would also like to dedicate it to him. And like I said, if you haven't read any of his books, um, can ask me, I can tell you some of his good books. Uh, some of it, my favorite ones are the ones where he uses the uh, uh, Peanuts comics. He likes to use the Peanuts comics in some of his books to bring out his points and it's uh, pretty cool. All right, so back to our class over here. Uh, we are doing lesson two. And like I said, lesson two, we're gonna discuss what happens when the soul continues on his journey and uh, it will be split up into multiple parts. So let me show you these multiple parts over here. We will have, um, we will discuss the moment of passing. We will discuss uh, the process of the soul's departure. 
uh, how that works. Again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm, um, we're going to discuss it uh, from a uh, religious point of view. Um, one second, let me just make this video panel larger so I can see everyone. Uh, we will discuss also the care of body and the interment and the grave visitation. So we will not only discuss details because again, in this class, we are not just telling you what we do, but why we do it and the meaning behind it. And um, probably, you know, some of it, you don't know all of it. Um, they tell the story of, um, they tell the story of a, a rabbi in a town which had a very anti-Semitic neighbor, anti-Semitic mayor. And uh, one morning the rabbi comes to the synagogue and he sees a dead uh, mule on the lawn of the synagogue. And so, he, uh, it's you know, that night, two o'clock in the morning. He calls up the uh, calls up the mayor on his cell phone and says, uh, "Mr. Mayor, we have uh, we have a dead mule on our property." And so the mayor starts screaming at him, and he says, "What are you calling me for, you you you, you dirty Jew? You know, it's it's in the middle of the night, and you could call you know you could call the uh, animal removal companies. Why are you calling me?" He says, "Well, listen, I'm a rabbi, and I know when someone passes away, you have to call next of kin." Okay, all right, that's the. Uh, that's the joke for tonight. Um, so obviously we understand <laughs> that uh, when uh, someone passes away, it is very, very difficult um, for the next of kin. It is very difficult for those of us who knew the person that passed away. And we are first going to get into um, how, the soul, how the soul feels about it. And also more importantly, what connection do we maintain with uh, those who passed away? So what, what connection do we maintain? That's something that a lot of people want to know. You know, how does Judaism view what is our connection to the person that's passed away? Um, so I would need a preface, something mystical. Uh, mystically, the soul has five levels. Um, so someone actually asked, asked last week, they said, you know, is the soul independent of God? Is it not independent of God? So souls are very complex. You have to understand souls are very complex. Um, although we say that the soul is a part of God, but as it explains, if you want to look for further reading in Tanya chapter two, uh, the soul has a lengthy period uh, has, so to speak, it's called godliness that becomes a created being. So it is a part of God, but through time, it, it has a, so to speak, gestation period that Tanya describes. It's kind of like a gestation, kind of like a child who is formed in their mother's womb. Uh, similarly to the soul, it starts off as a part of God, but it forms into a distinct identity. And in forming to this distinct identity, it also has five levels of the soul. So the soul is not, uh, so to speak, just one uh, piece, but it actually has, uh, there are five levels to the soul. Just so you know, where do we see a hint of the five levels of the soul? We see it in Yom Kippur. If everybody knows, uh, we make uh, three prayers every day. Jewish people have to pray three times a day. And uh, Shabbat, we pray four times a day. And then in Yom Kippur, we have five prayers. Why do we have five prayers in Yom Kippur? Um, good evening, Estelle. Good evening, Mommy. Good evening, uh, Dr. Yannick. All right, good to see all those who came in. So why does the soul have... Uh, why do we pray five prayers in Yom Kippur? It says to correspond to the five levels of the soul. And actually, the uh, last prayer, the Ne'ilah, corresponds to the deepest level of our soul, what's called the Yechidah. The Yechidah means the part of the soul that's one with God. That's the deepest level of our soul. But we have other levels of our soul that 
uh, I don't want to say are, they are in a sense disconnected. They, they have become, they're connected, but disconnected. They're connected to their, all the parts of the soul are connected, but they're, they kind of become distinct. They, 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 they look separate. It's kind of like our kids, right? As they, they look separate, but they're still connected to us, you know, as much as they, as, as much as they want to say they're independent, they're never really independent anyways. Um, but that's actually the Tanya's um, example is, is children and how they, you know, how, how they become formed. And just like a child, everything is formed from the parent, but, you know, there's a difference between the head and the toenails. So similarly in the soul, the soul has these different parts of the soul. There's the head part of the soul, there's the toenails of the soul, all different parts of the soul, but all parts of the soul are connected, okay? So again, there are five levels of the soul. And as you can imagine, if the highest level of the soul is the one that's the closest one connected to God, and we can feel in a Yom Kippur, when we feel one with God, when we scream out Shema Yisrael, you can imagine that the lowest level of the soul is the one that is usually within our bodies. That's the one that's usually very present and revealed within our body. Now it's connected to the higher levels of its soul, uh, but the lowest level of our soul is within our body. So today we're going to deal with two levels of the soul. And uh, those two levels of the soul, I didn't realize I'm still sharing, but okay. The two levels of the soul uh, are what's called Nefesh and Ruach. I'll just tell you all the five names quickly, but we're only going to deal with these two. Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, Chaya, Yechida. So the word Nefesh is used general as soul, but the mystics also tell us that within the soul, uh, the word nefesh can also mean the lowest level of the soul, the soul that comes within our body, the one that gives life, provides the physical life and powers to all the bodily functions. And the ruach, you know, ruach literally means spirit, right? It's our ruach. You know, when you say about someone, I can feel their ruach, I can feel their spirit. So the ruach is the part of our soul that drives our emotions and our feelings. And this may surprise you, but when we pass away, actually the nefesh, to an extent, the more physical part of the soul or the part that vivifies the physical body st stays within the body for a while. And the Ruach is what leaves and goes on to the Garden of Eden. So again, the Nefesh stays within the grave. The Ruach goes into the Garden of Eden. And uh, if you learn about the different levels of the soul, all the levels of the soul actually climb higher levels. So based on our understanding of this, where we, we are saying the nefesh may stay in the grave, but the ruach moves on, we can now understand uh, an important text. So I'm going to share with you a text. This text is, um, if you have the uh, textbook, it's page 43, but I will also share it on the screen. So do not worry. I'm just uh, scrolling to page 43 in uh, screen text. Um, so this is a letter. And again, we want to find out, again, why am I confusing you with levels of the soul? Because we want to find out what is the connection of us to our loved ones that have departed. And what you'll be surprised is that in a sense, we can actually connect to our loved ones more than ever before, right? So last week we learned that um, the soul lives on. And that was obvious. And we discussed that the real you was alive before you in your body. And the real you is alive after you lived in your body. But now we're going to discuss how, in a sense, you can actually connect to your loved ones more in their passing than while they were alive. So um, this is a letter that the Alter Rebbe wrote, the Alter Rebbe being the first Chabad Rebbe. He wrote this letter to the disciples of uh, another Rebbe called Rebbe Menachem Mendel of Haradak, he had passed away, and obviously his students were very sad. 
And he wrote this letter to give them a little bit of consolation. Now, although we're reading a letter about a tzaddik, these ideas apply to regular people too. Maybe not to the fullest extent because he was a tzaddik, but they apply to all, each and every single one of us. He says like this, as it is known, the life of a tzaddik righteous person is not physical, but spiritual. It consists of faith, reverence, and love for God. During the tzaddik's lifetime on earth, these three attributes that belong to the soul dimension of ruach, again, ruach, the spirit, which is faith, reverence, and love, are constrained within their container and garb, namely the nefesh that is bound to the corporeal body. This imposes the restraints of physical space upon these attributes. As a result, all the tzaddik's disciples receive but a glow of these ruach attributes, ruach meaning spirit, a mere ray that is emitted beyond the container by means of the tzaddik's holy words and thoughts. So again, what we're saying is, is, that, is that the container is the body, it's containing this powerful soul, and you can only connect to him through what he tells you, through his words. The inability to, to receive directly from the Ruach is a revelatory handicap. And therefore, our sages stated that it takes 40 years for students to fully plumb the depths of their master's teaching. So uh, what's interesting here is what you see is that you, you, you can deeper understand your teacher over time. You think when you're, when you're there, you can understand it better. But no, it's actually over time as you fully start to delve deeply and grasp their words. All right, but he continues. By contrast, after Tzaddik's passing, the nefesh, that's the more physical part of the soul or the soul that vivifies the body, separates from the ruach, the spirit, and remains in the grave, while the ruach and its three attributes rise to the Gan Eden, in the Garden of Eden. Consequently, whoever is close to the Tzaddik can receive directly from his ruach in Gan Eden because the ruach is no longer restrained in a container or confined to a physical space. There is now a straightforward path for the Tzaddik's disciples to connect with the essence of their master's ruach, the faith on love with which the Tzaddik served God, and not merely these attributes outer glow that escape beyond their container, the disciples connect and receive commensurate to the degree of their loving connection and closeness to the Tzaddik during his lifetime and after his death, for the transmission of all things spiritual is always by means of great love. So let me explain. Um, what we're saying here is that it's a fascinating idea in that if you read what he's saying, he's saying that you can actually connect more to the Tzaddik now that he's passed away than when he was alive. You would think the opposite is true, right? But the idea is, is that the body constrains the soul, right? The body does not allow the full expression of the soul. Whereas um, once the soul leaves the body, now it can be fully revealed. And if you, can, if you are able to connect to the Ruach of the Tzaddik now, if you can connect to his emotions and feelings, you can connect him in a greater way than before. Let me give an example because it sounds a little esoteric, sounds a little far out there. Um, children are taught in kindergarten how to multiply. But when children first learn how to multiply, they are taught with things. So like my son is using fingers, right? So two plus two, one, two, three, four. Or you show them apples, right? You take two apples plus two apples, one, two, three, four, right? They relate to math, to addition and subtraction through physical items. Um, however, when the child matures, they realize they don't need physical things to relate to the idea. Uh, not only that, apples is a limitation in math. Uh, really, math is much more complicated than the things. The idea of math exists without the apples, and you can get into more complex math once you don't have to start counting physical things, right? And 
so similarly, we can say that while a person is in their body, we can relate to them like a kid relates to math of apples. We can relate to them as a thing, as we spoke last week, right? Like the piano, the container, we can relate to the tzaddik we can, or, or anybody, we can relate to the person only through the container of their body because their body limits the amount of their emotions that, is, that, that can be expressed. Uh, just imagine if our emotions could be fully expressed, imagine how many therapists we'd have to see, okay? So <laughs> our, our, our gamut of emotions, our body has to limit it. And we'll get to it a little bit later, uh, why the body limits uh, the gamut of our emotions. Um, so again, so while the person is alive, the body constrains. It constrains how much we can connect with the person. Uh, however, once they pass away, there's that limit goes away. And now we can connect with them in a much greater way. Uh, good evening, Sylvia. Good to see you. Um, okay. So based on that, let's take a look at the next text. Um take a look at the next text. Okay. It is also a matter of common sense that whatever the direct cause of the separation of the soul from the body. So this is a letter the Rebbe wrote to uh, someone who obviously lost a uh, um, lost a relative. So it is a matter of common sense that whatever the direct cause of the separation of the soul from the body, whether fatal accident or fatal illness, etc., it could affect only the vital organs of the physical body, but could in no way affect the spiritual soul. A further point, which is also understandable, is that during the soul's lifetime on earth, in partnership with the body, the soul is necessarily handicapped in certain respects by the requirements of the body, such as eating and drinking, etc. Even a tzaddik, whose entire life is consecrated to Hashem, God, cannot escape the restraints of life in a material and physical environment. Consequently, when the time comes for the soul to return home, it is essentially a release for it as it makes its ascent to the higher world no longer restrained by a physical body and physical environment. Henceforth, the soul is free to enjoy the spiritual bliss of being near God in the fullest measure. And uh, just in case uh, you don't yet fully relate to this concept, I'm gonna show you a video. And um, with this video, we will bring this case that I'm trying to tell you. So again, I'm trying to build a case here. That's what you have to realize. I'm trying to build a case that uh, we actually only we actually have a more superficial connection to our loved ones while they are alive. Not superficial, but we don't get the full depth of them. Why? Because they are contained and limited by their body. And now we're going to bring a great scientific example. So if you want to uh, look at the screen, um, and I'm going to mute my sound for a second um, so you can hear. How many passes does the team in white make? Go! The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear?
that's what psychologists call inattentional blindness. And no, it is not a condition to be concerned about. In fact, life would be impossible without it. Let me explain. As powerful as the human brain may be, it is easily overwhelmed by the sheer onslaught of observation, calculation, sight, sound, and signals that envelop our every waking hour. The brain cannot permit itself to register and record each image and movement, every message and stimulation. Instead, our brains and nervous systems aggressively filter and limit our intake to manageable levels. The result? We notice a fraction and ignore the fullness and remember far less. Often, we purposely engage in what cognitive neuroscientists call selective attention, like focusing on a dinner partner in a crowded restaurant while tuning out all other conversations in the room. Now imagine that you had the ability to absorb everything around you, to absorb, comprehend, and recall all the details and fetch every memory at will without being overwhelmed. That is the incredible experience of the human soul once it detaches from the body at the close of a lifetime. Unshackled from the frailties of a nervous system, unrestricted by networks of neurons, it is unbelievably free and powerfully present. It is free to absorb truths that mortal minds cannot contain, present to delight in the divine radiance that courses through the cosmos to bask in divine understanding that supersedes human senses, but is savored by the newly liberated soul. All right, so that was, <clears throat> I think, incredibly powerful and a great example is that uh, as, as uh, uh, Henry Bergson put it, Professor Henry Bergson, I never heard of him before, but it's in the notes over here. He put it that the greatness of our mind is not in what it, it lets us know, but in what it doesn't let us know. The greatness of the mind is in how much it enables us to ignore. Uh, so think about that, is that we experience a watered down version of ourselves. It's like watching a HD video on a non-HD capable screen, right? So you have the power, the capability of the HD, but you're watching it on, on a dumbed down screen. Um, and that explains why the moment of passing is so significant. At the moment of passing, all that person's energy is released. It's no longer tethered and bound by its container. And it can become revealed at that moment to all those that loved him or her. And while the Alter Rebbe framed it referring to a tzaddik, but these ideas refer to all of us because all of us have the godly part of our soul. Yes, we are not as holy as a tzaddik as our sole pursuit in life was goodness and kindness and holiness. But those parts of us, once we pass away, those just, you know, become unshackled and, and the true power of it can be revealed we all have those characteristics. And that's why I said last week, we should try in our lives to focus and live within those characteristics as much as possible, because those are the ones that are going to live on. 
And some suggest this is actually why you find an interesting thing that after people pass away, we tend to have a greater appreciation for them. Now, some say, well, once they pass away, you know, all the negative things go away too. And that's true to an extent. But we can also say mystically this idea, why do we appreciate people more when they pass away? We feel their void so powerfully. And it could be because at that moment, the true reality and power of their souls is revealed. Their being, their love and their care and their warmth and all their positive qualities now that they have left their container can now be fully revealed and we can feel that in such a powerful way. So if we look at the moment of passing like that, in a sense, you could say that the moment of passing is a moment of celebration, right? For the soul. Now, obviously we as people cannot celebrate when someone passes away. We are not equipped to celebrate when someone passes away. And actually, as we'll get into the class, when someone passes away, um, we actually, uh, the soul also has a difficult time as we'll discuss. That being said, we do find this idea that on the yard site, right, on, on the anniversary of someone's passing, at the same time that we miss them, we also celebrate their accomplishments. And in a sense, it's a day of celebration. A yard site can also be a day of celebration. We're celebrating their life. Uh, for Tzadikim, it's called Yom Hilulah, a day of rejoicing. To an extent, uh, you are celebrating their life. Uh, because on that day, all the accomplishments of their life shine. On the day of their yard site, the power of their life is shining very, very bright. And so when we think of it in this way, uh, although it is very sad that we have lost our loved ones, and again, we'll get into how we deal with it in the first year, but it, you know, if you're beyond the first year, a relationship always demands that we meet people where they are. With children, we relate to them as children. As they turn into elementary kids, we deal with them in another way. As, as they grow older into adults, we should deal with them in another way. You know, don't tell your 25-year-old kid, you know, where were you tonight or something like that. So as, as, uh, as children get older, we, we relate to them different ways. And the same thing is um, to those of us who have people that have passed away, we have to now realize what place they're in and how to try and meet them where they are. And if we want to continue that relationship, we have to remember what state are they in? They're currently in a state at which um, they are, they, all those feelings that they had are in such a powerfully, in a very powerful way, they're, those positive attributes. And those are the parts that we want to connect to. Those are the things that we want to think about and that's the way we can actually connect them. Think about all those powerful, positive attributes. So let me show again, uh, just to show you on the screen. So in our lifetime, we are but limited. However, once we pass away, um, we, we have the essential um, attributes are revealed. In other words, the essence of the person is revealed, which is the goodness of the person. And sorry, one second, I got to move this video panel away so I can move on to the next slide. And therefore, our relationship with the deceased should now become much more spiritual. Um, it's a joke that they say. They say, uh, uh, they say, someone once, unfortunately, we'll talk about cremation at the end. Obviously, cremation is not allowed in Judaism, but they say, you know, uh, someone's had a um, uh, you know, her husband passed away and, and uh, they decided to offer cremation. And uh, so she orders the urn. She wants to keep it in her house. And one time she had a relative over at the house and the relative was smoking and was putting the ash into the urn over there. And later on that day, the wife comes over and looks at the uh, urn and says, ah, oh, 
even now you're gaining weight. All right, sorry if that's dark humor, but uh, we don't, <laughs> that's called relating to people who pass away in a very physical way. You know, the people who passed away, we have to relate to them where they are at. We have to realize that our relationship with them is spiritual. That is why we try and do mitzvot to honor them. We try and do more spiritual deeds because that's part of what's shining right now. You know, we name children after them and we talk about them and talk about their legacy and talk about the wonderful things about them. If you were in Shul this week, you know, we spoke about someone who passed away and the love that they had for all the people, even if it was tough love, but that's the idea. Those are the parts that we can relate to the person. And in a sense, you can feel it more powerful now. Uh, we're gonna show another quick video, which will give some visualization to this idea that even if um, someone has passed away, it's not like they've gone somewhere else. They are still here we just have to relate to them in a different way. So let me play this video. Oh, sorry about that. Let me try. Welcome to our meditation reflection for lesson two of Journey of the Soul. We're going to try to visualize and relate to the idea of the continuing connection between those who are still inhabiting this world and their loved ones who have moved on. How can we visualize this connection? So I want to share with you a metaphor that was given by the Lubavitcher Rebbe to a grieving family when they lost their dear mother. The Rebbe told the family, you should know that your loved one, when they pass away, hasn't gone to some faraway place. Really, what is the situation? It's as if the whole family is together on the first floor of the house, and this loved one is in the same house with you on the second floor. So we're going to try to visualize. All right, so um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop the video there. And the reason is, is I want to explain, and it's a very important point, is although it is, so the idea of the metaphor of being on the second floor is that, um, the point is that the person is there, but you now have to relate to them in a different way. Someone who's on the same floor as you, you have to relate to them in a different way. The difference though, is when uh, someone passes away, they're not necessarily on a different floor. Uh, when we talk about the soul and where it goes in the garden of Eden, there's the higher garden of Eden, lower garden of Eden. Uh, when we're talking about spiritual space, spiritual space is not somewhere else. It's not here and it's not there. It's nowhere and it's everywhere. It's, uh, you know, can you say one plus one? equals two is in this room and not in that room? No, right? Just as an idea can exist anywhere. When we say the soul goes somewhere, it's not going to physical space. So it's not like it's farther away. But the point of the metaphor is that the soul is still around, but now you have to relate to it in a different way. And obviously in many ways it's difficult, but the point that we're getting from here is that A, the soul is still accessible. That person's still available to you, but B, you have to relate to them in a slightly different way. 
uh, relate to them now in the state that they are in and see in many different ways you can actually relate to your loved ones in a more powerful way because they are not anymore contained within their container. Uh, in a sense, their soul is untethered and is much more powerful and uh, they're never going to forget anybody's birthdays anymore. And they're present in every, at every family event and, and they can be, because they can be everywhere now. They're not contained to being in one place. They can be, you know, it's like Elijah. He comes to every Seder. Is he drunk? No, he can be here and there and everywhere, you know? He can be, uh, he can be everywhere. And just if you want a, a simple physical example of this idea, and I'll bring it from a tzaddik, of course, but if you look at the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who of course passed away in 1994, I think everybody would say that his influence is much more powerful today than it was when he was alive. And that's just a, a great uh, example of uh, where the power of a soul can be much more powerful after the passing than during their lifetime. Okay. Any questions on this section? Because we are done with this section and the next section we will discuss uh, the moment of death and what that feels like for the soul. Um, yes. Gotta unmute. So if we, with the Zadik, you can relate to him after he dies through his words, mm -hmm. but a regular person, how, how do you relate to that person? because they're not exotic and they haven't recorded their words. So in what way? Right. So um, if you knew them, then you can relate to them, uh, to the, the uh, positive attributes of that person, uh, reminisce about them, talk about them, talk about, focus on the parts of them that uh, were powerful and, and recognize that it's not just the love they showed you then, but realize that they are showing you love now. Um, their their love is still there with you right now. So if it's if it's a parent or a grandparent or a, uh, whoever it is, uh, those feelings, those positive feelings that you felt towards them and they felt to you still exist. And if anything, their feelings towards you are more powerful now than they were before. But vice versa, y you can't feel as powerful as that. But recognize that their feelings haven't gone anywhere. Um, they're actually more present than they were before. And I think that's a comforting idea. People want to know, do, do their loved ones love them anymore? Do they care about them, know about them? And uh, the answer is yes. Not only do they love you, they actually love you even more now. And they have the ability to be at all family places, you know, at all times. Although it's interesting, Sylvia tells me that uh, in uh, the Sephardic tradition, you actually, if you're celebrating a yard, site, a yard site in one place, you can't be celebrating it in another place. It's interesting, there's all different traditions. Yes. Uh, Okay. Yes, uh, Sylvia. You got on mute. So two things. Um, when um, you, you talked about names and now you're talking about the yard site in two different places. Uh, when I was born, the, my father called his mother. He said, I just have, have a girl. She's just born. What are you going to give me? And his mother said, I'm going to give you my name. And she lived to be 102. So we actually believe that when you name after the living, you give them um, a longer life. Um, it's, it's interesting how. Yeah, that's true. But then again, they also continue the name after the passing. Yeah, the... yeah. But to go back to the letter that the Rebbe wrote, um, 
I think I understood because sometimes the letters of the Rebbe, I have to read them over and over to just understand. But what I understood is it's like the soul is not besimcha on this earth and it's just waiting to go up, to go back up to be happier and in right, so what you're saying is is the soul happier when it leaves this earth it's a complicated relationship as we'll learn in a moment as we discuss the moment of death um we discussed last week before the soul comes down here it doesn't want to get here uh when it's down here it doesn't want to leave but once it gets up there it's happy again so it's a complicated relationship and we'll expand upon it in a moment Okay, when we discuss the moment of death and is the soul happy or sad at the moment of death. Because is, isn't that what the Rebbe said? It, it will go back to its spiritual... Yes, the soul becomes more powerful. That doesn't necessarily mean the soul is happy about that or sad about it. It doesn't necessarily mean... That, that's the fact. The fact is the soul is unleashed and its power is revealed. Uh, we'll get into a moment. Okay, uh, I want to point there's a, there's a question here in the comments. What happens to the soul when resurrection takes place? Are they still here? with us when they are resurrected. Uh, well, resur when, when they get resurrected and they come back to their bodies, uh, but we will discuss more at length resurrection in class number six. Okay, uh, we'll, met, we'll touch on it today, but mostly in class number six. Uh, but when they are resurrected, they come back to their bodies. All right, any other questions? No, all right. So, um, now let's move on to how the soul feels um, about this change. So obviously we know from a very physical standpoint of view that the moment of passing is difficult. There can sometimes be physical pain, which of course the medical professionals uh, try to alleviate that. There's also a lot of medical literature written about dealing with the emotional pain and suffering that can go on at the end of life. And I just want to put that here, just for those, uh, just just some, you know, since we're talking about uh, death, it's important to see this here. So they discuss there are three basic points. Um, uh, it's important to uh, at the at those moments they say uh, to be open and honest with the dying person, and uh, family members should speak to the patient even if you think the patient can't hear, and reminisce about good memories. And it tells the person that their life was well lived. That's one way to deal with the emotional pain the person is feeling. Another thing important is physical contact. Um, it can be very soothing. It can also uh, sometimes just sitting there and being a presence can also be helpful. And um, finally, you know, setting a comfortable atmosphere. There's a lot of uh, studies about uh, music therapy and how that can improve the mood and help with relaxation. Uh, but either way, that's all from a medical perspective, which you don't come to me for medical perspective. But since we're talking about that moment, uh, I wanted to just present that. And um, this is uh, where the studies are. Um, that being said, um, let us take a look. So again, you might have an understanding, and as Sylvia presented it from reading the letter of the Rebbe, that the soul, being that it gets untethered from its physical constraints, at the moment of passing is very happy. However, nothing could be farther from the truth. Let us, uh, oh, let me share the uh, text over here. Can you see the text? Give me a thumb up. Yes, okay, good. All right, so the text, this is from the Zohar. The Zohar says, nothing is as hard for the soul as its separation from the body. Okay, so it's telling us 
The separation from the body is the most difficult thing the soul experiences. Now, I ask, now the question would be why? Why would it be difficult for the soul to deal with the separation from the body? Uh, seemingly, uh, the soul is happy. You know, it's finally getting unshackled. So we can obviously, uh, we're going to present at a different level, starting from the simplest level. The first level would be saying all transitions are difficult. Any transition is difficult. Uh, when you go from elementary to high school, you go from high school to college, you get your first job. All transitions are difficult. So it's a transition from the physical to the spiritual, even though it's getting to better place, it's still a transition and it's difficult. All right, let's take it a little deeper. As we mentioned last week, when the soul leaves this world, it cannot do any more mitzvot. And so it's difficult for the soul to realize that it's coming to the point where it cannot do any more mitzvot. Uh, which by the way, that is why uh, we do mitzvot in the honor of those who have passed away. That's why it's so important since they cannot do any more mitzvot. When we do a mitzvah in their honor, we can bring them in a certain way merit that they cannot get themselves. Even though they can feel God in a much greater way than we can, but they cannot do mitzvot. But when we do a mitzvah in their honor and because of their inspiration, that can elevate their souls. Okay. Uh, third level would be, uh, and that is that a powerful bond is broken. And what that means is that while the body is alive, while the person is alive, the soul and the body have a fusion unlike anything else. Um, if you read the prayer that we say after going to the restroom, it says, asot, and he does wonders. God does wonders. And the commentaries say, what's the wonder? The way that God makes a fusion of body and soul to the point where they're inseparable. Where the bot, you know, you put a you put a battery into an item, it's it's alive, but you know, it's electricity. Unplug it, you take it, the battery is dead. You know, the body and the soul just, you know just fit more than like a glove, you know, more than a hand in a glove. It's, it's just so alive. The body is so alive. The soul is so much part of the body. The body is so much part of the soul. While somebody's alive, it's hard for us to differentiate. You know, this whole discussion today of souls, it's hard for us to really appreciate because we really see people as their body and we don't see a distinction between their body and their soul, although that's the truth. And since they are so connected that moment of separation is difficult. It's losing a connection with uh, something that it was really fused with, so powerfully bonded with. And actually, the soul is so connected that the Jerusalem Talmud tells us like this. Let's take a look at this text. Powerful words. Uh, text number three, uh, page 49. For three days, the soul hovers above the body, thinking it can return to it. After three days, when it sees the body's face has changed, it leaves the body and departs. That's a pretty powerful thought to see that the soul is so upset at leaving the body because think about it, it identified with the body for so long, um, even though now it's untethered, but it identified with the body for so long, it doesn't want to leave until uh, it, the face starts to change and <clears throat> As we'll talk about soon, that's why it's so important to bury as soon as possible. Uh, don't ask any questions because I'm going to uh, quote a few more texts <coughs> that we'll see there's actually different stages of this separation. So here we have a three-day separation. It says three days, the soul goes back and forth. Now let's read seven days, okay? This is from the Zohar. The Zohar says, for seven days, the soul goes from the house where it lived to the grave and from the grave back to the house and it mourns its body. After seven days, the body is subjected to its fate and the soul ascends to its place. So here we have, first we had three days. Now we have seven days. 
I'm sure people are familiar with the three days and the seven days, but um, everybody knows what the seven days, the Shiva, um, which is why, by the way, it's important that Shiva should be celebrated seven days. I know today some people have taken the custom of doing only three days. Seven days is important. The soul keeps going back and forth to the house. All right, text number 4B, another level of separation. The Zohar says, for 30 days, the soul and the body are judged as one, and thus the soul is located down here on earth. After that, the soul ascends while the body erodes in the earth. And one final stage, text 4C from the Talmud. For 12 months, the body still exists and the soul ascends and descends. Up and down, up and down, up and down. After 12 months, the body becomes null and the soul rises and no longer returns. So there you had four texts, a three-day separation, a seven-day separation, a 30-day separation, and uh, a 12-month separation. And I'm sure you are all hopefully catching on. Um, as you can see, there's a process here. There's a process in which the soul leaves the body, which by the way, we're told also there's a process in which the soul enters the body. It says the soul enters the body slowly. The complete entering of the soul into the body actually happens by bar and bat mitzvah. I mean, I know that, but it actually, the completion of it is a bar and bat mitzvah. That's when the soul fully enters the body. The same way the, the soul enters the body in stages, it also leaves the body in stages. And um, every, as we said uh, in the beginning of the class, everything that we can, um, that we're gonna discuss about the soul also has relevance to our lives. What's the relevance of what we discussed over here to our lives? Well, if anybody knows the laws of mourning, let's take a look how all four of these stages relate to mourning. Um, this is from Maimonides. He says, mourners observe three days of weeping, seven days of eulogy. So within the Shiva, the seven days of mourning, it says the first three days should be the more heavy crying. Doesn't mean you can't cry later. Doesn't mean we're never allowed to cry, but the focus is on crying. Uh, the, full, the seven days is eulogy. Uh, 30 days restrictions on haircuts and wearing freshly ironed clothing, marrying, joining a celebration of friends and traveling a business. So uh, that's 30 days. And then of course, um, as I'll show in a moment, uh, let's take a look over here for 12 months. So there you have seven, uh, three, seven, 30. And then let's read over this. Uh, if you encounter an acquaintance, this is text number six uh, from the Shulchan Aruch Code of Jewish Law. Here we'll have the idea of 12 months. It says, if you encounter an acquaintance within 30 days of that person having lost next of kin, offer words of consolation and avoid the customary pleasantries. Customary pleasantries means, hi, how are you? How are you doing? What's going on? If 30 days have elapsed since the relative's passing, greet your acquaintance in the usual manner and offer indirect words of consolation because they're past this heavy, heavy mourning. Avoid mentioning the deceased by name and ex extend a generic consolation such as may you be comforted. If your acquaintance is mourning the loss of a parent, you should offer direct messages of comfort for the first 12 months and only after that scale it back to indirect consolation. Um, so we see clearly over here that our degree of mourning mirrors the struggle of the soul as it departs from the body. So um, as we said, the soul leaves the body first three days as its first level of separation. That's so the first three days of mourning, the most powerful. Then the next stage is seven, seven, the shiva, you, you know, you stay in your home the whole time. You don't go to work. 
um, that mirrors the soul. And that's, you know, the soul, it says in the seven days is going from the house to the grave, from the house to the grave. It doesn't know where to be. And that's why it's important to um, actually always have a shiva and whenever possible in the home of the person who passed away. Uh, because the mourning is not just for the mourners, but the mourning is also for the soul that keeps going back to the house. This explains a very, very strange piece of Talmud. Talmud tells us like this. If a person dies and leaves no next of kin to be comforted, 10 people should go and sit in the deceased home. A man died in Rabbi Yehuda's neighborhood as there were no more mourners to be comforted. Rabbi Yehuda assembled 10 people every day and they sat in the deceased home. After seven days, the dead man appeared to Rabbi Yehuda in the dream and said, may your mind be at rest for you have set my mind at rest. So what's interesting about that story is the person had no relatives. Now you would say he has no relatives, so nobody has to sit shiva, nobody has to mourn. So that's it. After the funeral, everybody goes away. But no, he said, we're going to bring people here every single day. Why? Because the mourning is not just for the mourners, but it's for the soul. And the soul is going back and forth from the home to the body, from the home to the body, and we want to be there for the soul. That is why many people have a custom at the end of the shiva. They take a walk around the block, it's, so to speak, escorting the soul on its next journey out of the house. As the soul moves on into its next uh, stage, we escort it on that path. And um, you can understand, obviously, based on this, why it's so important that uh, we bury people as soon as possible. Um, you know, I know there are people... Uh, there are people that I've known, right? If it's not, you know, somebody dies, it's an inconvenient time. Let's push it off for three, four weeks. You know, we have freezers nowadays. When everybody can make it there, let's do it, right? Uh, but think about it. If you're looking from the soul's perspective, that's really, really difficult for the soul. It, it can't move on. It, it's stuck because the body hasn't decomposed at all. It's in a freezer. Um, it, the soul is stuck in that limbo state and it's not, can't move on. And that's very, very difficult for the soul and therefore it's so important uh to try and bury as soon as possible that being said that being said um sometimes even in judaism we do hold off on a funeral for maybe a day or two if a kid needs to come sometimes we do that that is because we assume that the soul would prefer to wait the extra day so that their child could be there at the funeral but uh, we wouldn't push it off weeks and weeks or months or months so that uh, everybody can make it there okay um, someone uh, put in here um, an example of relating to the departed. I will get to it later because we're deep in this topic. Um, okay. By the way, uh, based on what I said, that the mourning is not just the people who are mourning, but the soul. This explains why the mourning, the words of consolation we say is always the plural. We say, Hamakom yanachem etchem, may the omnipresent. Uh, consola give consolation to you, plural. Etchem is plural. That we don't say hamakom yinachem otcha. Yeah, whatever. I know etchem is plural. Etchem is plural. So we say it in the plural. Why are we saying in the plural? Because we are not only, um, we are not only um, con consoling the, per the person that's sitting in front of us, but we're consoling the soul itself. And based on this kernel of truth that I've given you, that the, that the mourning is not just for us, but also for the soul and its transitional period, which it separates from the body in a slow way, we can now understand many, many other details that, are, that we relate 
uh, when it comes to a Jewish funeral. For example, um, uh, a court in many, many uh, funerals that you might go to, um, you might see that they will, um, you know, let me just, let me just, uh, you know, while I'm here, let me um, just share with you again on the screen what we've, what we've uh, showed. So again, we have the three days, the soul hovers over the body, the seven days, the soul goes between the grave and its home, the 30 days, the soul is located on earth. After 12 months, the soul fully leaves. Um, based on this, we have the four stages of mourning and the degree of mourning is to the degree of the soul's departure. And we don't just mourn for the soul, we mourn with the soul. And this gives us an interesting example. There's, uh, if you go to a regular funeral, when I say regular funeral, I mean non-Jewish, many times they have the service. And after the service, everybody goes home and a couple people go to the actual cemetery and they do the burial there. In Judaism, we always all try and get to the actual burial. And if you can't make it to the burial, it says you should at least escort the hearse as it goes on its way. So you will see these uh, pictures all the time uh, in religious communities where there's a car and there's many people gathered around the cars. It drives off to the funeral home. People walk near the car. They're escorting the soul on its journey. Um, it's a big mitzvah to escort uh, people who have passed away. In fact, we say it in our morning prayers. Those who say the morning prayers, uh, we speak about the Elu Devarim. We speak about the different mitzvahs that have re eternal reward. One of them is Halvaya Tamet, to escort uh, those who have passed away. And escorting those who have passed away is the ultimate level of kindness because um, they can never repay us back for what we've done, right? We're not expecting any, any money for you know, showing up for that. Um, that's the first thing that we can learn from what I said. Uh, the second thing that we can learn from what I said is um, how important is the body? In other words, um, once the body leaves the soul, does the, does the body retain any importance? Is it sad that the body's lost life? And uh, the answer is um, that it is a very sad moment of Jewish uh, tradition. And uh, let's read over here. It says in text 8a, one who is present at the time of a person's passing is required to tear their clothing. This is because a person's passing is likened to the burning of a Torah scroll. Um, so the law is when a Torah, if a Torah scroll is God forbid burned, you have to tear your clothing. And uh, similarly, if you are present at the passing, you should tear your clothing. Everybody knows it's called Kriya. Kriya means tearing. Everybody knows the mourners tear their clothing. But according to Jewish law, not only the mourners, but anybody who's actually present at the moment, the soul leaves the body, you have to tear your clothing. Now, I want to just caution. This is actually not Jewish law practice today. Why not? Because what happened was they saw people stop showing up at people's bedsides. People stopped showing up at people who are passing away because they didn't want to ruin their clothing. Uh, so the rabbis took away this custom uh, and they said only the relatives should tear their clothing because they want people to show up. Um, but nevertheless, the concept still exists. And so what's the connection between a Torah scroll burning and, and tearing your clothing when a person passes away? And uh, the answer is, let's take a look here at text 8b. Nachmanides points to the sacred names of God that are inked onto a Torah scroll's parchment as an analogy for the sacred soul that is instilled with the corporeal body. So just as a Torah scroll, a Torah scroll was parchment. It was a physical matter. It could have been your belt. 
right? The scroll of the Torah could have been your belt, but once a Torah is written on it, it becomes holy. Similarly, the body, although the body is earth, but once the soul went in it, it has a great holiness to it. And therefore, we accord the body so much respect, just as we would a Torah scroll. Let's take a look at some more text that brings us these ideas. Um, this is from a book called Gesher HaChaim, which means the uh, bridge of life. This is one of the most uh, uh, important works on um, uh, laws of burial and mourning. And he writes like this in text number nine, all who tend to a corpse must be aware that they are handling a holy entity. The human body is more than simply a sheath to a sacred entity, a tool that serves a supernatural soul. Rather, it itself has become sanctified with an independent holiness similar to a Torah scroll. So let me explain. So um, one can say, for example, that maybe the body is just like a, a container for the soul. So when the soul leaves, it's not holy anymore. For example, uh, if you have tzitzit on a garment, when you cut the strings off the garment, the garment is not holy anymore. The garment doesn't need to be buried. Uh, or let's say you have a chumash and the chumash has a slip case, right? So, you know, we bury holy items. You don't need to bury the slip case. You only need to bury the chumash when it's time comes, right? So one might say, well, when the soul leaves the body, the body was like a slip case for the soul. The answer is no, as we said, since they made that fusion, the soul is actually, the body is like a Torah scroll. It itself became holy. And therefore we have to accord it such respect. And that is why in Jewish tradition, we accord so much respect. And I'll just give you a couple examples. Um, if you're familiar with the concept of a Hevra Kadisha, the Holy Society, every Jewish community has this called a Hevra Kadisha. The Hevra Kadisha is called the Holy Society. Their job is to deal with those who have passed away. And great pains are taken uh, to assure great dignity to those who have passed away. For, uh, we don't treat the body like a lifeless, feelingless object. Um, when you're in the presence of someone who's passed away, <clears throat> first of all, they're always covered for respect. No casual conversations are allowed, only conversations that are necessary. Um, men take care of men, women take care of women. We even accord them the tzniyot, the uh, modesty that they deserve, even though they've passed. And... Um, uh, other things we do is a tahara, a purification process after someone passed away. Um, this is something that is not done, by the way. If you don't pick a Jewish funeral home, you won't get this. Um, there is something we do, which is called a tahara purification process. So uh, when someone passes away and we get ready um, to meet the king of kings, we get met ready to meet God, <clears throat> we want to go through a purification process. And so in some communities, they have an actual mikvah. They put the body in a mikvah. Uh, and, uh, otherwise, you can do a mikvah by pouring water on them. There are specific ways to do it. So first, they clean the body and make it perfectly clean, and then they pour the pour water on the body. And um, so, I just want to point out the practical. If you don't have um, end of life plans, it is important to do, um, and most importantly, um, to make sure you're being buried in a Jewish cemetery. And by the way, buying a plot is actually a omen for long life. If you are in this town and you wanna have a tahara, uh, it's only available pretty much through David Gross Funeral Homes. And you have to specifically request uh, to have the tahara to be done. Um, and so just make sure that uh, you have those arrangements arranged. Um, again, a Jewish uh, um, 
uh, David Gross Funeral Homes and uh, they can have the Chavar Kadisha to do the Tahara process. You want to make sure of that. Another thing that is done for respect is the body is never left alone. What's called Shmirah, guarding. We guard the body. Just as it says, you would never uh, leave something important and valuable just lying anywhere. You would leave, you make sure it's guarded. Similar to the body, we want to keep a uh, watch over it. So let's take a look over here at text number 10. We are required to maintain constant watch over a corpse, even during the daytime, even if there is no cause to suspect something can happen to the body. Those who maintain watch are actively performing a mitzvah to the extent that they are, meanwhile, absolved from many other mitzvahs, such as reading the Shema, reciting prayers at the appropriate times. We maintain a watch over the dead out of respect, where if we were to leave the body alone, it would appear as if we had abandoned it like a utensil that we no longer require. And uh, God forbid to look at something like that. Uh, there is a deeper reason for the shemira, for the guarding. Others say, uh, just like a, a jar of honey when it's emptied, you know, the bees want to come and get all the leftover honey. It says on a more mystical level, when the soul leaves the body, the unclean forces might want to come for the body. But that's a deeper mystical level. We don't have to, we don't have to go into that. By the way, after 9-11, there's a, there's a great article uh, that was published then in the New York Times. After 9-11, there were a lot of bodies in like freezer trucks for a couple months at the site over there. And um, there's a fascinating article, if you want to send it to you, about people who, uh, Jewish community that would sit out there every single night, 24-7, uh, sitting by those trucks to accord uh, the great respect that we have uh, for those who have passed. Um, other things we do uh, to accord uh, honor to those who have passed. And if you're squeamish, you might want to... Uh, uh, you might want to, um, um, yeah, you know, close the uh, close the things for a moment. Uh, one second. Oh, one other thing I forgot. Okay, so here's a couple other things I forgot to point out. Um, a couple other things we do is um, we clean and dress the the person in shrouds. So the burial shrouds, the Jewish burial shrouds are actually fashioned after the clothing the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, would wear when he would enter the Holy of Holies. Um, other things we do is we never uh, face the person face down. That is not respectful. Um, the other things we do, uh, it's not in here. Okay, I thought it would be in here. The other thing we do is uh, we make sure that the person is buried with everything. Because, we, because as we explained is the soul, the body was a holy container for the soul, we have to bury everything. So in cases where God forbid there was blood on a sheet or uh, in any other place, we actually bury that sheet with that person. That's why you'll see after terrorist attacks in Israel, there's a group called Zaka and uh, they go around and collect any, any God forbid body parts that might be anywhere. Um, everything has to get buried because we uh, have an appreciation that everything is holy. Um, someone asks, no organ donation. The answer of organ donation is an interesting question. Um, while we're on the topic, so by, before we get to organ donation, what if someone has to amputate something during their lifetime? If God forbid someone has to amputate a leg or something, uh, actually the law is that the leg should be buried. Uh, anything that has a bone in it should be buried. However, it doesn't necessarily have to be buried in a grave that you may one day be buried. It just has to be buried. Um, however, the commentaries do talk about any organ that doesn't have a bone, 
doesn't necessarily have to be buried. I'm just telling you the different things I was studying. It's a fascinating topic. But regarding organ donation, the big problem with organ donation is a lot of organs are harvested when the people are alive. The reason is because once the person dies, the organs are not, are not as useful. And so organ donation is allowed if it's done in a halachically permissible way. And according to many rabbis, you have to wait till uh, both the brain and the heart stop. So some said for a while, if the brain dies, brain dead is called dead, but most rabbis do not consider that dead. And so therefore you have to wait till the heart stops. Uh, so you can do organ donation um, uh, while you're alive, of course, but even after someone passes, but you have to make sure they will only take the organs once both once the heart stops. I think once the heart stops, the brain's also dead. So the heart stopping is really the main thing. That is with uh, organ donation. Someone asked, does this apply to someone who has something surgically removed pre-mortem, an organ or pancreas? So yeah, we do try and, uh, uh, we do try and, um, uh, we do try and bury everything if, if they do have to have something taken out. Um, someone says, I thought death of, but I said, but like I said, there's debate if it doesn't have a bone, does it actually need to be buried? Not necessarily. Um, someone said, I, I thought the death of the brain stem. So it's the, it's the heart stopping is the important one. Like I said, there were opinions that said the brain, which would make it easier to harvest organs because if the heart's still pumping, the blood is going around. But uh, most opinions hold that you need to have the brain stopping. There's an organization out there called Halachic Organ Donation. And if you want to be a halachic organ donor, you can sign up with them. They have the options for the two options, you know, heart dead or brain dead, and you can carry the card or whatnot, sign up with them if that's something that you want to do. Uh, because if you sign up with the state of Florida to be an organ donor, they may take your organs if your heart is still beating. Um, so you want to sign up with halachic organ donation. Okay. Um, All right, so we discussed, um, well, did I, did I, oh, so let's look, let's take a look over here. So talking about what I said a moment ago, talking about the different parts. Um, there's no differentiation in a reverential treatment between a complete Torah scroll and a single letter that has become detached from a Torah scroll. Similarly, it is forbidden to handle with disrespect even a single bone that has become detached from a sacred body that was created in God's image. Um, I wanna point out people were asking what about organs uh, big question is the placenta, let's say also, do you have to bury a placenta? Um, and the consensus of most rabbis is no. Um, so that's why I said there's, there's this differentiation given between something that has bones or not. Okay. Um, we are ready for the next part. And the next section is, uh, burial. Uh, based on all what we said, uh, so what have we established till now? We've established that A, the body is special because like a Torah scroll, it itself became holy. In addition to that, the soul doesn't fully disconnect from the body for a certain period of time. And as we mentioned, the level of nefesh, the level of nefesh of your soul is still in your body even when you pass away. Based on all of this, we can understand Judaism's aversion to uh, cremation, Right. If all what I said is true, the body is a holy to be treated with respect, just like a Torah scroll. And the soul, you know, is still very much connected to the body even after you pass away. Um, and we accord all this respect to the body, we definitely should not be doing something as violent 
as cremation. You can imagine, we discussed earlier, the souls going back and forth between the body and the house, the body and the cell, comes to the body and it's being destroyed and burned. And if you read about cremation, and if you do want to read about it, you can uh, borrow this book, Cremation or Burial. You can order it online. We had a speech about it. It's actually very violent, um, pretty, pretty violent if you read about it, uh, because a lot of things don't burn, something that's be crushed. So, <clears throat> but I wanted to just establish, I'm going to go through this quickly. You can look at these texts later, but here's a verse where the Torah talks about burial. You should surely bury him on the same day as his death. So from there, um, we see that, um, <clears throat> we see that uh, burial is written clearly in the Torah. Let's take a look at the next text, text 13. Ecclesiastes said, people proceed to their eternal abodes and mourners go about the streets. The dust returns to its earth as it was while the spirit returns to God who bestowed it. So, and what that tells us is that we have to return everything to its right place. This is another reason for burial. Everything has to be returned to its correct place. The soul goes its place, the mourners go their place and the body has to be put back where it came from. Where did the body come from? It came from the earth. God fashioned it from the earth. We are custodians of our body. We don't own our bodies, right? Unlike common culture today, we don't have ownership of our bodies. God owns our bodies. He gave us our body. He put our soul in it. God is the one who has ownership of our bodies. That's why there's certain things we can't do. You're not allowed to mutilate your body. We, we don't have ownership of our body. God does. And that's why it says here, it says, Rabbi Chaim Vital, the famous student of the Rizal says, from, for you are from dust and you will return to dust. The body comes from the earth and is entrusted as a deposit to the individual's care. Upon death, the deposit must be returned to the earth from where it came and buried there. We don't have the ability to not bury it. That's not, it's not ours to not bury it. And therefore, it's very important to know, even when a family member, God forbid, requests cremation, we should not listen to them for multiple reasons. Okay. A is, it's not their body to make that decision. We have to return it back to God. And B, obviously, we understand that where the soul is now the soul understands that it would prefer to be buried. And actually by burying it, we are now actually honoring uh, the memory of the person who passed away. Um, I wanna point out how powerful and important Jewish burial is. Everybody here knows the book of Ruth. And at one point Ruth's mother-in-law told her, go away, you don't need to live with us. And what did Ruth answer her? Ruth said, wherever you go, I go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I die, and there I will be buried. So of all the important things in Judaism that she had to mention, there I will be buried. It's so important for Jewish people to be buried. And we know throughout history, um, throughout history, Jewish burial is uh, one of the most important things. Uh, the Torah speaks at length about how Abraham went to go purchase uh, the plot of land from uh, uh went to go purchase a plot of land. We speak about uh, Yitzhak and Yishmael went to bury their father Abraham. Jacob buried his wife Rachel. Uh, Joseph's last request was to be, buried in e to be buried in Israel. God buried Moses throughout Jewish tradition and throughout Jewish history, burial has been an important thing. And um, on top of that, I wanna mention, and if you wanna know more about it, you can, but being buried in Israel is also very special. It says that being buried in Israel alone atones for many of your sins and can save you possibly from some of the pain in the afterlife. So that is why you see so many people are, wanna be buried in Israel. Uh, that is why we also bring the earth of Eretz Yisrael here, but it's probably not exactly the same. 
Now, lest you think cremation is not a problem, unfortunately, cremation is a rising problem. Just to give you an idea, in 1960, only 3.6% of Americans did cremation. Today, as of 2015, it's over uh, 50%. As of 2015, it was up to 53% of Americans, and it's only going up. And as uh, Beryl Wine likes to say, as uh, the world goes, so do the Jews go, and the Jews are starting to cremate at uh, a much uh, greater pace. And unfortunately, a lot of the times it is lack of knowledge. Um, I want to show you um, uh, now. So why are people cremating? One reason is money. Money alone should not be a reason. There are free burial plots in New York. Um, I did a, we did a burial earlier this year for someone, if you remember. Uh, we fundraised here $1,500. That was just to get the body up to New York. But once the body was in New York, they buried the, they buried the person for free. Um, so that's a lot cheaper than cremation. So if the only reason is that money should not be a problem, that's on top of that, anything that's important to you, you should spend money on. Those who are worried about environmental concerns, actually cremation affects the environment worse than burial. Burial is actually one of the most green things you can do. It's natural, especially a Jewish burial, right? Non-Jewish burials have maybe all these fancy things and they put chemicals in the body. Jews, it's straight. It's a, it's a simple box. We don't put any chemicals in the body. We burn them straight in the ground and they become part of the circle of life. There is nothing uh, greater than burial. Here, I want to show you a website from a Jewish burial, uh, Jewish funeral home that actually... Uh, by the way, if you have a relative that's cremated, um, we'll get to that at the end. We can discuss it at the end. Um, unfortunately, it has happened. I know many people probably here have had that to happen to their relatives. But here's interestingly enough from uh, a Jewish funeral home. They say, we will do cremation for you if you really, 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 really want. But they say you should consider a couple things. They said, first of all, the cost of the environment is much greater with cremation. The smoke created by the process spread into the environment is significantly worse for our planet than the earth buried in a wood casket. It's a lot worse. Financial consideration should not be a problem. And then they bring all the different places in the Judaism where a burial is so important. And then here they describe to you just how icky and disgusting cremation is, uh, just in case you want to be. So it's, uh, it's they, they really, really don't want you to do it. Now, my guess is they don't want you to do it because they make more money off of a burial. That's just my guess. But uh, I'm hoping is for a good reason, you know. But either way, um, it's very, very important to uh, make sure one gets buried. On top of that, um, from a Jewish perspective also, uh, cremation shows a lack of faith in the resurrection. And so we believe as Jews that we will be resurrected and the, build, the body will be rebuilt. And more on this topic in lesson number six, but we believe the body will be rebuilt. And by opting for cremation, it's an implied rejection, A, of God's ownership of our bodies. It's a rejection of the holiness of our bodies. And it's a rejection of the resurrection of the dead. So again, cremation, and again, we need to educate the masses, but cremation is a, is a, is a uh, rejection of the, God's ownership of our bodies, the holiness of our bodies, and the belief in the resurrection. And that is why it is of the worst thing. You know, for generations, people would say, you know, cremation is something that the Nazis did. Unfortunately, that feeling is going away amongst our Jewish people. And it's important for all of us to educate people. If you want, buy them the book. I know uh, there's someone in this community, actually, that uh, is not very, uh, doesn't practice a lot, but I gave him this book. And he said he decided on 
burial over cremation, even though his family all ridiculed him, but he felt it was the right thing to do. Um, I know someone else in the community that, uh, uh, you know, I'm not going to say the story. All right. Um, okay. Either way. Yes. Um, it, yes, Susan. So Jeff tells me in Florida, they have to um, put the body in a cement, something cement. Yes, good question. All right, in, in Florida, they put the body in a cement vault. That is why you want uh, the Orthodox rabbis, at all, if at all possible, to do the burial because we make sure to put earth within the cement vault. On top of them, uh, some of them have a little hole in them uh, to allow for, um, and, and cement is a little more porous than other materials. Um, cement is somewhat porous. So, um, but we do fill up within the cement vault earth also. Okay. Um, there are though, um, I have been at funerals here where there is none. It just depends where you can get away with it in some places. Okay. Actually, that's a Florida law, they told me. That, that it is a Florida law. In some places, they are allowed to cut out parts of the cement. Hmm. Um, so they cut out some of the bottom. The idea is they don't want, they don't want, huh? Yeah, yeah, because the aquifer, exactly, because the aquifer, they don't want it floating around. All right, let me just uh, finish here because we're really late. We're at 8.45. So um, I discussed, you know, even if someone asks for cremation, we don't listen to them. We understand they're in a better place now and they understand. Um, so with everything that I said, um, I want to also mention some of you may have heard there's a concept of not visiting the grave for the first 12 months. Uh, you may have heard it or not. Some people have that concept that is a custom amongst some people. And I was reading today about it. And really the custom is don't visit the grave in the first 12 months to beg for your own mercy. It says because the soul is busy with their own judgments in the first 12 months, but you can come to the grave to pray for them but don't come there and to ask them to pray for you. That is some customs, not all customs, some customs, just letting you know the different customs. However, we're going to get down to customs. Now that we appreciate that we do have a connection with our loved ones, even after they pass away. And as we said earlier, a part of the soul remains in the grave, the level of nefesh. Therefore, um, it is important that we go visit our loved ones, if at all possible. Uh, and I'm going to skip the next texts, but uh, you can see in text number 17, someone said he wanted to be buried in a place where he knew people would visit him. Uh, because even when our loved ones pass away, they do recognize our visits. They do appreciate our visits um, because there's a part of the soul that's in the grave and they can see and they, because all parts of the soul are connected, they know when we visit. That's also why some people say you put a stone on the on the tombstone. There's different reasons given. One reason is so that they notice that you were there in case they were on a trip. It says the soul sometimes goes for trips. It's a lengthy discussion. Again, we're running out of time. Um, either way, um, I want to end off with this letter just because we're running out of time. I hope you all though appreciate uh, that we've that we've you know get, explained in today's class um, how much you know, how when the, when the body passes, uh, when the soul leaves the body, at this, although it is untethered, at the same time, it is a difficult transition for it. There's still a lot of holiness to the body, which brings up a lot of the customs that we do. And also we discuss the relationship that we can still have with our loved ones. So on the note of relationship, I want to read here a letter 
um, that was written to uh, Hannah Sharfstein. Those who have been here for a while uh, know who she is. But um, the Rebbe wrote a letter to her on the passing of both her father and her mother who passed away at a very young age. Um, so the Rebbe writes to her like this. I received your undated letters in which you write about your emotional upsets in connection with the passing of your mother and the questions which are troubling you in this connection, involving also questions in regard to the passing of your father, peace unto them. Another fundamental point to remember, which has a direct bearing on your letter, is that all believers in God believe also in the survival of the soul. Actually, this principle has been discovered in this physical world where science now holds an absolute truth that nothing in the physical world can absolutely be destroyed. How much more so in the spiritual world, especially in the case of a soul which in no way can be affected by death and the disintegration of the physical body. It would be silly and illogical to assume that because a certain organ of the body ceases to function affecting other physical organs of the body, the spiritual soul would be affected thereby. The truth is that when the physical body ceases to function, the soul continues in its existence, not only before, but even on a higher, not only as before, but even on a higher level, inasmuch as it is no longer handicapped by the restraints of the physical frame. Thirdly, the attachment of children to their parents and the general attachment between close relatives during life on this earth is surely not a physical attachment by the respective physical bodies of the relatives. Essentially, the attachment is a spiritual one due to the spiritual affinity between those concerned and the qualities of the soul, including such spiritual things as character, kindness, goodness, etc. All of which are attributes of the soul and not of the body. Therefore, also, every action on the part of a person in relation to a beloved person and desire to benefit that person is not directed towards pleasing his physical body, his bones, and his tissue, for it is the spiritual pleasure that one is concerned with. In view of the above, it is clear that even after the physical body is disintegrated and disappeared from view, it is still possible to enjoy and benefit the soul, which, as noted, not only survives but does so on a higher level. And all the things which have previously brought joy and pleasure to one's parents will continue to do so even after they are physically no longer here. And that is uh, today's lesson. I'm sorry I went over time. Um, but um, if there's someone that you know that you love that passed away, take a moment to think about where they are, the power of their soul, uh, the power of their feelings and their emotions, the things that live on, their ruach, their spirit that lives on. Think about it deeply, contemplate it for a moment, and think about how you can connect to those aspects of that person in an even greater way today than you were able to do, to do before. And hopefully that is the takeaway from today's class on top of all the practical considerations that we gave today. So may we all be reunited with our loved ones very, very soon with the coming of Mashiach. Thank you all so much for coming. Now I will open it up to questions. But first, someone um, mentioned over here in the notes in the chat, I think we can talk to those who have passed away and they can hear and understand in perhaps a deeper way than when they were here. That is exactly the point. They can hear us, uh, they can be aware of us, although the question is, will they? And it, it might depend, you know, the soul is in a better place. Is the soul always gonna be aware of what we say? It's a good question. Definitely, if you go to their grave, they're definitely gonna be aware of you. Um, maybe, you know, if you're doing things that they don't wanna know about, they don't wanna hang around you. I don't know, I'm just, uh, you know, but if you do the things that they like, you can definitely connect to them in a greater way. Um, conversely though, I think it's also possible you can cause them greater pain by not living up to how they would want you to live because now they actually experience that pain greater and you can't hide from them anymore. You know, uh, we do talk about in, in Jewish mysticism and it's not for this class. I don't know if we're going to get to it in this course, 
souls have different cycles and they have they're busier more times and less busy other times that's actually why some people say you should put a rock on the grit on the tome just in case they weren't there when they come back uh they'll notice that you were there um because sometimes they're busy they head off to different places um but there's a lot of fascinating uh, pieces in the zohar about people that have passed away and how their relatives came and woke them up it says that's actually why that's actually why when when uh, historically when Jews would pray for things and they would go to the cemetery, they would bring a Torah scroll. It says that a Torah scroll will always wake up the souls because of the honor of the Torah scroll will always be present. So if you come there with a Torah scroll, they'll be present. And that reminds me, I forgot to say um, one thing when Jews go to cemeteries, because we appreciate the awesomeness of the moment, uh, it says that one should not go if at all possible after you've eaten. You should go if at all possible on a day that you, you should drink try not to eat we don't go in a gluttonous way we go to the proper awe and respect and so we try and go there not eating you should drink we don't want you to faint over there uh but not eating allows us you know you can come straight from uh, eating at uh, a big deli sandwich and then head off to the cemetery okay open it up to questions if anybody wants yes thank you rabbi very good thank you thank you so much thank you sorry it went so long but Oh, no. Great. Thank you. Okay. Um, if you want to talk, you just have to unmute. Rabbi. Yes. Out of curiosity, so you, something that just came up, I was going to ask a different question, but I want to ask this one now. Um, so you had mentioned that the Jews, uh, that Jews would sometimes bring a Torah to the, the cemetery. But why is it that we took in our tzitzis then out of respect to the dead? So as not to remind them of like the, the mitzvahs. Yeah, yeah. So um, obviously, uh, so what he's saying is there's a, there's a law when you visit a cemetery, you don't outwardly show any display of mitzvahs because you, you're embarrassing them. They can't do the mitzvahs anymore and you can. Uh, when you bring a Torah scroll, you actually want to catch their attention. So uh, it's, it's, it's not something you should do all the time. You do it when there's a need and they understand the world is in need. They're not going to be upset at you. They understand there's a need in the world. Uh, yes, uh, Milt. Uh, I was reluctant to ask this question, but mm -hmm. it bothers me a lot. Three yeah. days, seven days. Yeah. Why not five days and nine days? Where does the time specificity come from? Oh, where do they get the three days and the seven days? Yeah. Well, uh, the it's a horrible question to ask, but it, it really bothers. Well, we saw we saw from the Zohar that there's a a certain level of mourning that the soul does for seven days, so that's why. That's a sim that's a simple reason why. Um, I think it mentions somewhere in the Tanakh also about seven days specifically. I have to recall where. The idea of a month, by the way, is clear in the Torah. It says about the beautiful maiden who's captured. It says she should cry for her family, Yerach Yamim, for a month. And there you see clearly the 30 days. Yeah. Um, I think there is somewhere in the Torah it also mentions seven days. I'm, I'm trying to remember where. But um, yeah. we saw on the, obviously the Code of Jewish Law says the seven days. Um, but you can say simply seven days is a cycle, so it makes sense. Yes, uh, Susan. Rabbi, I read um, that a little part of the soul always stays with the body. And mm -hmm. if the whole soul leaves the body, then why do we visit the grave site? That's, no, I did say the nefesh. The nefesh typically stays with the body. 
That's why I said in the beginning. For always? So there may be times of the year where it might leave temporarily, but for the most yeah. part, it sticks around the grave. Oh, I thought it was like an 18th of the soul. Right. So the nefesh is with the body, but the ruach. Yeah, the nefesh is with the body, the ruach leaves. What about yeah. those martyrs that were never buried? What about the martyrs that were never buried, my husband asked. This I, this I don't know. Um, I'm sure God took care of them. It's all, all my yeah. Yeah. So uh, Rabbi, if the nefesh is left with the body, yeah. how does a new soul grow a new nefesh? Or what happens when that soul is now coming back to earth into a new body if it mm -hmm. doesn't have the nefesh? Oh, all right. So you talk about reincarnation. Reincarnation is a topic of a different class. It's a good question, but we will cover it in this course. Reincarnation and what happens. So, you know, if you come back again, so have you totally left? The no, no, not, not that the body comes back again. The soul comes back. Yeah, again. the soul comes back. So does that, when the soul comes back, does it mean it's fully left the previous life? I can ask a better question. When the resurrection happens, who's getting resurrected? Is it the first life, the second life, the third life, the fourth life? That's another question. There's a lot of fascinating questions about the resurrection, you know? Can we so pick out married twice. If someone's married twice. <laughs> Who they get married <laughs> Rabbi, I don't know if you got this chat, but some people will tear a piece of cloth and pin it to their lapel. Ah. So what what about that? I didn't see that. Um, that is a new invention in traditional Judaism, it doesn't work. The whole idea of tearing your clothing is showing that you're sad. If you're tearing a ribbon, it's not sad. You, should, you haven't lost anything. No pain, no gain, or whatever. I'm saying like it's not, it's not, so so when I when I show up there, I always tell them, you want to tear the ribbon, do whatever you want. I'm not gonna tear the ribbon. I feel it's better not to tear the ribbon than than, than you know, better okay. not tear better can not tear anything. Wear, can you wear an older blouse so you don't Yes, yes, you can definitely right. do that. Just saying. Rabbi, just just as a recap. So the first 30 days, basically, the, um, the uh, soul is still going back and forth, yeah. right? From the yeah. body to the, you know. You're embarrassing me now. You're pulling up my memory. I don't remember what I read. <laughs> uh, there was a seven days. Um, well, let's see. It's, some, it's somewhere in there. We'll find, we'll find yeah. it in the book. Someone who finds a text. Seven, seven days, it goes back and forth between the house. Yeah. 30 days. It was in text. Yeah. yeah. I don't remember. I'll find it soon. Uh, anybody else has another question while I find it? Oh, I had it, Rabbi. Oh, wait. Well, we'll let someone else who hasn't asked the question yeah. yet. Uh, yeah. Who else? Sylvia? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You have to unmute. What time did you go? Early? Unmute. Um, yeah, so, Sylvia? Is it, uh, I'm sorry if I ask this question, but. Is it an Ashkenazi tradition to um, Nachem Avelim just in the evening or? Ashkenazi tradition is you could go anytime. Okay. The reason why you see in this community, it's usually in the evening is because we don't live in a religious community where we can gather a minion at all times of the day. No, but we cannot go during the day to here? I don't, I'm confused. You I'm can, you can, I, you can if they say they're accepting visitors. 
Oh, okay. There, Shelly, I put on the screen the text you were looking for. You can, yeah. But they yeah. have to say they're accepting visitors. You don't want to knock on their door. You know, they need a break too from people visiting. You know, there's a time to hear people, a time not to hear people. Okay, anybody else who hasn't asked a question wants to ask a question. Otherwise, we'll go for the double dipping. Uh, no? Okay. All right, uh, Jacob, then you're up. I didn't copy that. <laughs> mine was in regard. No, mine was, I had pulled up the document for the days, but you have it on the screen. Yeah, I have it on the screen. Yeah, for oh, okay. Thank you. Yeah, I have it on the screen. Uh, what's, what's your, what's what, uh, Jacob, you have a question? No, I had gone back. I, I had the days written for, oh, okay. um, yeah, never mind. Okay. Any, anybody else has any questions? I covered a lot of stuff. Oh, maybe you forgot it all. It was, it was a lot. lot. I knew it was going to be a lot. Yeah. It was great class. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And uh, as always, the practical is of most importance. Uh, if you don't have a plan, as they say, get a plan. And uh, the other line they say, if there's a will, there's Chabad. No, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> so I have a question. Okay. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much, Rabbi. All right, go, go with your question. Now, 